you're listening to Just One of the Guys, where I'm actually kind of disappointed that Sasha Baron Cohen won't be playing Freddie Mercury. Another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Guy, again, is sadly out of the books until I can dredge up some stuff that, you know, he's in. Don't worry, that'll be coming soon. But in this place, we get a second book that's going to be featuring not only Green Lantern, but also his maybe not best bro, probably his least favorite person to be around, the Wally West Flash. In the prestige format book, Green Lantern Flash, Faster Friends. It's a great story that teams up the golden age Green Lantern and Flash, along with the then modern age Green Lantern and Flash, and a story that has to deal with some of the things that went on in the golden age, even though it may not have because I couldn't find any information about this character in all of my research. But it's a fun story nonetheless. Plus, we're also going to be covering Green Lantern number 84, which is the second part of the Retribution storyline, where Fatality, the person who has a mat on for Green Lanterns, does her best to make sure that Kyle is the last Green Lantern that she'll have to kill. Plus, we get a relationship to Fatality and her origin, which also happens to deal with a certain former Green Lantern who's in this book, who... Uh, probably would have given her a really good reason for her to be peeved about the Green Lantern Corps. But sadly, it's just one more thing to lay on the burden of this character. Uh, he gets so dumped on. But we'll get to that as well as emails and uh, some promos after we play these promos. Because I have to. Because you need to listen to it. So, after the promos, we're going to be coming back to look at emails, then the coverage of Green Lantern number 84. Stay tuned. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. These freaks are dedicated, hard-working people. I'm Batman. Whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. This looks like a job for Superman. Captain America! It's the Dime Man! It's the Rocketeer! Gentlemen, you're up. 
Comics Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com. Hi, this is Professor Allen. And when I'm not listening to an awesome podcast, like this one, I'm co-hosting an awesome podcast, The Book Guy Show. Every week, we cover book news, book reviews, comic books, audio books, audio dramas, and podcasts. Search for The Book Guys Show on iTunes or come visit us at bookguys.ca. And we're back. And thankfully, we've got a few emails from some of you wonderful listeners. So let's go ahead and pop open the email bag and get right to it. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> And our first letter this time out comes from Mr. Tom Panneries, host of Taking Flight, a Robin and Nightwing podcast. He's the host of Pop Culture Affidavit, and he is also the host of the brand new, well, not really brand new, but the newest podcast out there of In Country, a non-podcast. In Country is quickly becoming one of my favorite podcasts to listen to because not only does it cover a really interesting comic out there, but Tom really puts a lot of effort into covering what was going on at the time. So there's not only an interesting review of a comic, but there's an interesting interesting history lesson going on at the same time. Fun stuff there. But Tom Smith writes in with the title, Bo Smith Interview Episode. He says, Sean, I just wanted to write in quickly to say that I absolutely enjoyed the Bo Smith Interview Episode. He sounded like he genuinely loved working on Guy Gardner Warrior, and I'm very glad that I've started going back to the bins and buying his run on the book. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. I hope you guys got a chance to listen to the Bo Smith interview. It was really, I think, one of the most fun things I've done on this show so far. And again, Bo was an incredibly generous man, and I'm glad that Thomas DJ and I were actually able to get to talk with him because, yeah, there was some fun stuff that went in into that interview and some fun stuff that came out of it as well. Definitely go check it out. Self-promotion, I'm horrible at it. Our next letter, however, comes from the man, the myth, the legend, the one man who can take out Godzilla with his own oxygen destroyer that he personally found on eBay, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. Luke, if you didn't know, is the host of Earth Destruction Directive over at the Tutor Freaks website, and my co-host on the Vault of Starlink Monster Horror Tales of Terror. Probably by the time this goes up, we'll be getting around to recording a vault show that's our halloween show where i'm gonna have to figure out what we're gonna do for or what i'm going to do actually for a story thinking is hard anyhow luke writes in with the title email can i have one more night all right but this is your final night get it it's reference to the final sacrifice with zap roustauer no one gets it anyway luke writes in saying sean I remember distinctly seeing print ads for Green Lantern number 81 in Wizard Magazine, featuring the Green Flame cover image. At the time, I did not read Final Night, beyond the stuff in Superman and Flash, but I definitely recall thinking, well, that spoils that. Yeah, it does kind of give up the ending to the story with uh, pretty much all the heroes being there except for one. Hmm, I wonder what hero that could have been. Luke continues, spoilers notwithstanding, this was a fitting send-off to Hal Jordan after his reputation had essentially been dragged through the mud in the wake of Emerald Twilight and then Zero Hour. Whatever one may think about the quality of Hal's stories, he was still a major pillar of the Silver Age and deserved better going out as a lunatic nutjob freakazoid. 
I agree, and I think Final Night and Green Lantern number 81 definitely gave him that out. I think they, if not really rehabilitated him, but gave him uh, a recognizable feel that he was actually a hero. Yes, there are probably people who still felt that what he did was wrong, but he, in the end, like I said uh, in issue 81, or episode 81, or whatever, issue 7, that Hal actually ended up doing what he always does. He was a hero, so there you go. I think your statement of this being on par with Barry Allen's sacrifice in Crisis is right on the money, Luke continues. Much as Barry's heroic end gave legitimacy to Wally West's time as the Flash, I think this was designed to do the same for Kyle Rayner. Of course, Hal couldn't stay dead as Barry did, but that's another topic for another time. You know, I understand them wanting to bring uh, Barry and Hal back, and they're major pillars of the DC Universe. My problem, it's a diminishment of the characters of Wally and Kyle, and I know I've discussed this before, and I, I won't get into it, it seems like they're favoring one character for another, and yes, that character may be more recognizable and may be more interesting, but it just didn't sit well with me. But everyone has their own opinions, and everyone's entitled to them, and I am welcoming of all opinions on this show. Luke finishes up with some random stuff. He says, my sons have a pair of switch-and-go dinos. Oh. <laughs> However, they do not have the Rocky D style of the one which Tom recorded. I think you should be thankful that that's the case. The ones that they have are pretty annoying, true, but nothing on the level of that one. Yeah, it wasn't Rocky D. What was his name? Oh, God. MC Roar. Oh, jeez. MC Roar. That's almost as bad as Rocky D. Again, if you're giving this stuff to your kids, Luke, uh, I, I'm... Proud that you're having your kids learn about dinosaurs, but yeah, those just are some annoying little toys, I guess. Luckily, I have girls. Luke continues, Three Dirty Dwarves is a fairly unique game in that the player controlled all three dwarves at once. Okay. Essentially, each one used a different piece of sporting equipment, a bowling ball, baseball bat, and balls, and a shotgun. Is a shotgun a piece of sport? I guess, yeah, I guess it could be sporting equipment, uh don't know any major league games that use shotguns, but maybe in the future. And you can swap all of these on the fly as you go. Pretty wacky. Looking forward to more adventures of Kyle as we move forward with the YGL universe. Keep up the good work, Luke. And he says, P.S. The subject line, of course, as a double MST3K reference, as the same gag was used both in Final Justice with Joe Don Baker and the Final Sacrifice with Zap Rousedower. Yep, I caught both of them, Luke, and thank you for being a fan of MST3K. In my opinion, you can never have enough MST3K in your life. In fact, I think I think the final sacrifice is streaming on Netflix, so if anyone wants to get an idea of what we're talking about, go check out the final sacrifice on uh, Netflix. It's fun stuff. Good Canadian bacony goodness. Yeah. Anywho, that's the end of the email section. Thanks, everyone, for writing in. And if you'd like to write into the show, the email address is justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to write in, and I'll make sure that I read it on the air. But again, with emails out of the way, let's go ahead and get into coverage of Green Lantern number 84. Green Lantern 84 was cover dated March 1997, with a release date of January 3rd, 1997. The cover price was $1.75 US and $2.50 Canada, and the title was Retribution Part 2. 
Writer again was Ron Mars, penciler Daryl Banks, flashback penciler this time was Chris Batista, inker Romeo Tangall, colorist Pamela Rambo, letterer Chris Eliopoulos, associate editor Eddie Braganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Standing atop an NYC skyscraper, Fatality strikes her best Ed Benet's pose as she declares that she's going to kill Green Lantern. Fortunately, current Green Lantern Kyle Rayner and former Green Lantern Jon Stewart have something to say about that, as they figure out their plan of attack while watching her monologue. Much to Jon's dismay, Kyle's plan is the tried-and-true smash-her-with-a-big-construct thingy, which works about as well as one would expect. The Fighting Fightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, leads Kyle and Fatality across the New York skyline and eventually into the bowels of the subway system, where Fatality finally pins Kyle to a supporting beam and prepares to kill him. As a final request, Kyle asks the Ebon Elf what her deal is with wanting to try and off Green Lanterns, which leads us to some Thomas DJ style. Fatality says that she was born on the planet Zanshi, where, as the oldest child of her family, she was sent off-world to train in combat with the Warlords of Okara. She learned that she had a penchant for fighting, which would serve her well after she found out that her home planet was unexpectedly blown up. Eventually, she discovered that a Green Lantern was to blame for her home's demise, and thus began her quest to rid the universe of all the members of the Core. Despite the fact that a former Green Lantern destroyed the Core, it didn't stop her desire to seek revenge for the wrong perpetrated on her planet. Fatality ends the story by stealing one last kiss from Kyle, but before she can finish him off, Jon Stewart enters the fray, and much to everyone's surprise, blasts Fatality with a stream of emerald energy. Phased from the attack, Fatality retreats with Kyle's lantern, but not before jabbing a dagger into his shoulder. Jon pulls the blade out and tries to explain how he was able to blast Fatality, but time is of the essence, and the two head off to track the batteries deep down. Worried that John would blame himself if he found out that he was responsible for Fatality's attitude, Kyle reluctantly brings him along to the dock from the last issue. The duo witness an alien spacecraft burst from an abandoned warehouse and take off into the night sky. John begs Kyle not to go after her, especially since his ring could run out of power at any time, but Kyle ignores him and heads off into hyperspace to follow her. The two engage in a little cosmic combat, which ends up with both Fatality's ship and Kyle crash-landing on an alien planet. Uncertain of how much power he has left, Kyle starts to search for the downed damsel, until the Diagnoga wraps a tentacle around his leg. Kyle rings up a buzzsaw to free himself, but before he can finish the job, the power on his ring grows out, and Kyle is pulled under the murk by the throttling alien tentacle. Like last issue, we get a really great cliffhanger ending again, as well as some uh, tying into Green Lantern history. The destruction of Zanshi was a big part of Jon Stewart's character, and it really motivated him throughout the 90s, especially in the Mosaic uh, storyline. And the fact that this story about a new Green Lantern that uh, we have is referencing history about the book is, is really great. Plus, it builds on the entire idea that even if there isn't a Green Lantern Corps, there is still a feeling of family within, within the Green Lanterns of Earth. I like the fact that Ron Mars is, even though the Green Lantern Corps has been wiped out, 
the members of the Green Lantern Corps are still around, and they're still able to impart wisdom onto Kyle. And I really enjoy that uh, that aspect of the book. And speaking of the book, we'll go ahead and start out with it, taking a look at the cover. It's a decent enough cover by Banks and Tangal. Uh, not really invocative of anything that goes on in the story, but it's a nice cover that'll get your attention, especially when you see Kyle not really impaled, but, you know, having a lance through the back of his costume, holding him up with this strange sort of barbaric woman uh, holding Green Lantern's lantern. It's a nice cover that would draw you into wanting to buy the book. Uh, one of the little neat things is uh, if you look at the top part of the uh, cover, it looks like uh, Fatality and Green Lantern are, are being framed in front of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. And I guess that's a big sort of posh hotel in New York City. So it's nice that Mars is at least putting some locale in the books. And also, I don't know if this has any meaning or not, but on the cab, it's got the cab number on front saying 381. And I don't know if it's any particular reference to anything. When I did a little uh, internet research, the only thing I could really see it relating to was the phrase, I love you. And it was the, uh, basically, uh, the idea was three words, eight letters, one meaning. So the 381 comes from that. I don't know if that's the particular thing that they're trying to get across or whether it's just the number they threw in there, but it's it wouldn't be the first time that they've tried to fix, I don't know, not necessarily numerology in the book, but putting a number in there that has an alternate meaning, like 650. Page one, I kind of joked in the beginning of the synopsis that this was an Ed Benny's pose. It's really not. It's just your stereotypical female from the side. But yes, there are butts and boobs aplenty, but it's not as gratuitous as Ed Benny's. But yeah, uh, Fatality is, yeah, she's pretty hot. I'll give her that. Page three, panel one. This is kind of out of place, and it looks just sort of, sort of, well, not really photoshopped, but posted in. There's a really blatant billboard ad for Fourth World on this panel. And I know that uh, John Byrne was starting up the Fourth World storyline here, but uh, this just seems like really hackneyed advertising. And then on the same page, panel three, I think Kyle probably could have been more effective on uh, taking out Fatality if he hadn't announced himself on the previous panel. When you're trying to sneak up on your villain and knock him out, Silence is probably the best thing you could do, and not announcing yourself is pretty stupid. Page four, this is not really anything about the art, but particularly about the paneling. And in the 90s, they seemed to experiment a lot with the paneling, getting away from the six-panel or nine-panel grids. And here we're seeing a lot more inset panels and the panels overlapping each other, uh, a lot of panels not having squared-off borders, having curved borders. I just thought I'd point that out because this is sort of indicative of 90s comic art and the way that the stories are being told. And I think it adds a bit of a more cinematic quality to the books, but I think some people might be thrown off of it because it is sort of a very 90s change up from the standard grid type art that we were so used to in you know earlier days of comicdom. Page 5, panel 1. The way the art is framed right here, the way uh, Banks draws Kyle as he's falling off the roof and shooting his ring off, it looks very Spider-Man. It looks like Kyle would 
be using you know his ring as sort of Spidey's web shooters to shoot out a web line here. So it's just kind of evocative of that of that kind of art. But of course, in the next panel, instead of a uh, web line, which would have been cool, he shoots out a parachute, which doesn't make any sense because he can fly. But uh, whatever. Then on page seven, if they hadn't mentioned at the beginning of the book that Chris Batista was penciling this flashback portion of the book, I really wouldn't have noticed because his pencils are very much like Daryl Banks. There is not that sort of extreme change up in artistic styles that we'll see in the next book that we're going to be covering because the looks aren't all that different. Uh, I guess there's subtle differences. Uh, Batista seems to have a bit more a bit more curved to his pencils rather than the sort of angular look that Banks does. But uh, it doesn't jar the reader, so I always uh, I always appreciate that in the books, especially if there are going to be multiple pencilers on the book. Plus, just a little Easter egg here. If you look in the background on panel three, you can see uh, behind Fatality and this Okaran warlord fighting, there's a girl there that looks very reminiscent of a young Starfire. Huh. I think you can definitely tell it's her from the enormous amount of hair she has. So, yep, this does tie in with a... Teen Titans in just whatever minuscule type of way you want it to tie into. Page 8, we get a really nice splash page uh, depicting the explosion of Zanshi uh, with Fatality's uh, sort of young screaming face suddenly merging with the uh, explosion near the top of the panel. If I hadn't really been looking at that, I never would have noticed it, but uh, you've got a side profile of her screaming uh, as the uh, planet explodes, so... Uh, it's a really good artwork by Batista here, and the the image of John Stewart, especially with his uh, sort of older uniform and the the white coming off where his chest emblem is for the lantern is, really looks nice here. Page ten, panel two, we get some bitches be crazy here as a fatality after giving Kyle the whole story about why she's motivated in killing the Green Lanterns, decides the best thing to do is lay a big old smackaroo on him, which just goes to show that women can't get enough of Kyle, even when they want to kill him. So, there you go. Page 12, panel 4, after John has rescued Kyle by somehow blasting Fatality with green uh, lantern energy, uh, Fatality jabs a dagger into Kyle's shoulder. Ugh, that is just horrible and it it moves on to page 13 pen one as fatality's gotten away and banks just does a great job drawing the facial expression on kyle here i mean you can really feel the agony and the pain that kyle is going through even with the mask covering a majority of his face uh, he looks like he's really hurting here and plus you know this is the anatomy person in me coming out it's very lucky that where she stabbed him in the shoulder didn't nick an artery because there's a pretty good sized artery, the subclavian that runs kind of behind, uh, well, the ball of your, well, not the humerus, but the ball of your, well, yeah, your humerus that uh, runs on your arm. So, yeah, getting stabbed, people don't seem to realize that getting stabbed, you know, doesn't just hurt. If it nicks a major artery inside your body and you start bleeding out internally, that's how you die so yeah and the fact that Kyle just sort of bandages it up means hopefully that he didn't have a, a fatal artery nick 
Page 15, here's a little bit of the story that stretches credulity. As we see on this first panel, fatality ship blasting out of an abandoned warehouse down by the docks. Now, this is really problematic because the ship is obviously larger, uh, the way it looks on this panel, than the warehouse itself. So, first of all, it's taking down the warehouse to get out of it, but the fact that it was hiding in it means that she had to get it in there somehow. So was there some sort of shrink ray? Did she have someone come in and build a warehouse around it? It just doesn't work within the narrative of the storyline. It's a nice image, but when you think about it, it shouldn't be happening. Page 16, I like this, that uh, as Kyle is you know, following fatality into the wormhole, he comments that he should watch more sci-fi channel because he doesn't exactly know what's going on. I would have to agree that he should watch sci-fi channel around this time, not because he needs to learn more about wormholes and science fiction type stuff, but because right around this time, sci-fi was beginning to broadcast the eighth season of Mystery Science Theater 2000, and Kyle could have gotten in on the ground floor of the new Bill Corbett level of Crotum. Is that even a word? The, the Bill Corbett Crow. Uh, the first couple episodes were kind of weak. Uh, Revenge of the Creature, Bill was kind of getting his footing. But after, like, episode four or five, the show was just brilliant. Especially when they got to the brain guys. But, but this isn't a Mystery Science Theater broad podcast. Page 17, we get a kind of interesting construct that Kyle rings up to fight Fatality Ship. He rings up a sort of World War One biplane to shoot down the ship, which is kind of neat. It's out of place. It's not something that you would think that he would see. But then Kyle comments that his great-grandfather fought in World War One, and uh, he was Irish, and he fought on the side of the French because, well, obviously, the Irish and the British were not having good relations at the time. But I do find it interesting that Kyle comes from Irish background, from emerald background, if you could say. Then on page 20, as Kyle is exploring this cave where fatality might be, he rubs his hand across the wall of the cave and he says that it feels like hardened snot. So you're definitely getting kind of an alien vibe because that's what the alien residue was kind of described as being. But then page 22, we get the great cliffhanger ending with Kyle's ring going out and the Dianoga just wrapping its tentacle around. Well, I know it's not the Dianoga, but I'm calling it anyway. The Dianoga wrapping its tentacle around Kyle and pulling him under the water. So it's really a good cliffhanger. It really makes you want to buy the next issue because Kyle could be dead here. He's got no ring. He's got no power. We've seen in previous issues that he's not that good a hand-to-hand fighter. So... Without the ring, how is he going to make his way out of this, especially against an alien woman who's been trained in some of the fiercest of martial arts? It's a really good story and a really good cliffhanger, and I can't wait to get to the next issue. But unfortunately, I'm going to have to wait until next week. But I've also got one more issue to cover, the issue of Flash and Green Lantern, Faster Friends, which we'll be covering right after we play a couple of promos. Attention, people of Earth, do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat 
your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hey, you. Yes, you, hearing this message. Do you like podcasts? Well, evidently you do, because you're listening to one right now. Do you like giant monsters? Of course you do. Who doesn't like giant monsters? Well, then have I got the show for you. Earth Destruction Directive is the newest Daikaiju podcast on the internet. And we talk about all your old favorites, like Godzilla, Rodan, King Ghidorah, and Gamera. But also lesser-known monsters, like Gappa, Yongari, and Giawa. We cover everything from movies to comic books to video games, and we're kicking it old school. This is breaking news. We are receiving word that Earth Destruction Directive is now a part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. Listeners are advised to stay in their homes and listen to all of the fine quality podcasts on the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, available at twotruefreaks.libton.com. We now return you to your regularly scheduled broadcast. Wait a minute. Is this true? Earth Destruction Directive is now on the Two True Freaks Network? You bet your oxygen destroyer it is. So if you love atomic-powered, fire-breathing, hardcore, giant monster action, then head on over to twotruefreaks.libson.com and check out Earth Destruction Directive. We're turning all of your daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. The Vietnam War, a conflict that changed America. Of those who served, many came back irrevocably changed, while many did not come back at all. This is their story. Marvel Comics presents The Nom. Join me, Tom Panneries, for In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics series, The Nom. Each episode, I will recap and review one issue of the series, as well as provide historical context that's important to understanding the events behind the story. Along the way, I will also take a look at the movies, music, and literature surrounding the Vietnam War. New episodes are posted every two weeks at incountry.podomatic.com. Com. You can find show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. And we're back. And this time out, we're going to be taking a look on our second book at the prestige format two-issue series, Green Lantern Flash, Faster Friends. Of course, this uh, was titled Faster Friends Part 1 and had a cover date of 1997. It was released around December 11, 1996. The cover price was $4.95 US and $6.95 Canada. Wow. The writer was Ron Mars. Pencilers were a there were a bunch of them this time out. There was Bart Sears, Andy Smith, Jeff Johnson, Ron Lim, and Tom Grinberg. The inkers were Mark Pennington and Bill Anderson. 
The colorist was John Kalis. The separator was Jameson. No idea. Letter was Chris Eliopoulos. The cover artist was Dave Johnson. And the editor was Kevin Dooley. Our story opens as two strange-helmeted figures come into focus. The figures remove their protective headgear to reveal that there are a couple of douchebag interns at a top-secret government research base. The duo discusses the tribulations of being away from all outside contact, as well as the unfortunate condition of their patient. And as the two leave to file the reports, we see that said patient is actually a big-brained, weird-headed purple alien. Cut to General Gunther's office, where the General pours himself a stiff drink as he watches the oncoming storm. But the moment is interrupted by the approach of the alien, who prior to this moment wasn't able to talk. The alien tells Gunther that he wasn't worried about the General and the Army keeping him hostage. His lifespan was so much longer than humans that this would have been viewed as a mere fraction of his life. But due, the, due to the experimentation with diseases on the alien, he now only has mere months to live. Gunther says he didn't want things to turn out this way as he draws a revolver on the escaping alien. This doesn't go well as the alien reveals that he also had the power to control minds as he makes Gunther place the gun in his mouth and pull the trigger. Cut to a scene of a mugging on the streets of Gotham. The two thugs worry that this might not be the best of ideas, especially with a certain masked hero roaming the streets of Gotham. Luckily for them, the masked hero that finds them is not the Dark Knight, but Alan Scott, the Green Lantern. Alan takes down the thugs with Construct Nazgul and then goes to check on the thugs' victims. Surprised that the save wasn't made by Batman, Alan tells them that he's been doing this for way longer than Batman has, and he urges the family to head home, as there's a storm coming. Over in Central City, a young mother is trying to get her child under shelter before the rain begins. But an unexpected lightning strike hits a nearby tree and sends a fiery branch headed down on top of them. Luckily, Jay Garrick, the Flash, was nearby to make the rescue. Nearby being relative, as he's one of the fastest beings on the planet. The mother thanks the speedster for the save, then witnesses him clutch his chest in pain. Jay soothes the mother's fear, saying that this happens off and on, and his doctor says it's nothing to worry about. But what they do need to worry about is the oncoming storm. Back at the Gotham Broadcasting Corporation building, Alan Scott is reminiscing about the exploits of Jane himself when he's visited by the alien from the beginning of the story. The alien tells Alan that he's dying and that Jane and he were instrumental in that. Alan tries to defend himself but is zapped in the process by Alien X, who turns his sight upon the other who helped end his life. We then turn to the home of Jay Garrick, who is definitely feeling his age. He too is drawn to reminisce about his first meeting with Alan Scott when the lights go out at the house. But before Jay can get a flashlight to check on the outage, Alien X appears and zaps the septuagenarian speedster, but not before he can scroll a message on a notepad. Alien X transports out with Jay in tow as his wife, Joan, enters the room to see what's going on. Seeing a message saying it's him on the scrapbook, Joan puts in a frantic call to Molly, Alan Scott's wife. The two chat and find that it's no coincidence that the two would be looking at the same article at the same time when they turn up missing. The two say their goodbyes and put in separate calls to the two people who might be able to help, Kyle Rayner and Wally West, better known as Green Lantern and The Flash. Wally rushes over to the Garrick house before Joan can even finish her sentence, and then she proceeds to fill Wally in on the backstory. 
Jones says that about 50 years ago, a flying saucer landed in the United States, and the government recruited Jay and Allen to investigate it. The two heroes had never teamed up before, but they felt obligated to do their patriotic duty and see what was going on. The duo attacked Alien X in downtown Gotham and nearly got their butts handed to them until they decided to work together to take him down. With the threat negated, the military stepped in and Jay and Allen were brushed aside without so much as a thank you. Peeved at the treatment, the heroes absconded with the spacecraft and hid it in a secret location so the government wouldn't be able to make use of it. The two heroes then went along with a cover-up story, and now 50 years later it looks like their complacence has caught up with them. We now see Kyle Rayner sitting at Molly's home listening to the same story. She asks Kyle to make sure he brings them back to safely, and Kyle assures that he will. Cut to the frozen north as Green Lantern and the Flash streak towards their unknown destination. Suddenly stopping, Wally proclaims that they're getting nowhere by just running around and trying to find them. Wally asks Kyle if he can use the ring to locate them, but Kyle says that since Alan's energy is different from the Owen energy that the Green Lantern choose, he can't just home in on it like he could when he was searching for Hal. Upon the mention of Hal, Wally says that Hal could have made it work, and Kyle retorts that he's only been doing this for a while, so cut him some slack. Exasperated, the two decide to split up and try and cover more ground. Wally speeds off while Kyle flies skyward in hopes that he can detect Alan using his power. And on, as on cue, we see Alan and Jay in the middle of a frozen field alongside Alien X. The two heroes tell the alien that they won't help him regain his ship unless he uses it to leave peacefully. X says he's dead already, so what does it matter where he dies, and uses his mental power to force Alan into blasting a hole in the ice, revealing X's ship. The trio walk toward the craft, with X saying that there is much to be done. High up above, Kyle gets a faint signal of Alan's power. Landing, he focuses on the energy and pinpoints the location of where it came from. Satisfied with himself, Kyle signals Wally after a quick encounter with a polar bear, and then heads off to where he caught a glimpse of the Starheart energy. Inside the spaceship, Jay and Alan plead with X to take their lives rather than the lives of innocents. The alien scoffs with at their pleas until he sees Wally and Kyle break into the ship and prepare to put the beat down on this This Island Earth mutant wannabe. But X has an ace up its sleeve. Two to be precise, as he wills Alan and Jay to engage in some Fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, with their younger counterparts. Kyle tells Wally to attack the alien, but Alan and Jay keep, him, keep them from him. The elders say that they've got to take off the kid gloves and take them out, which Kyle does, uh, maybe a bit too well, as Jay falls ill like he did earlier in the issue. Freed from the alien's mind control, Jay tells the youth that they need to be a team, a team like he and Alan were. And with that, the last lantern of the Scarlet Speedster lay into the alien. But X tells them it's too late, and not only has he triggered a self-destruct, but he's also sent out a communication signal. Wally grabs the unconscious heroes as Kyle tries to reason with the dying alien. X marvels at the compassion being shown, but says it's too late now. Too late for all of us as the ship erupts in a cloud of flames. Kyle makes it out at the last minute and meets up with the heroes, but wonders what exactly the alien's dying words were supposed to mean. Here's a really good cross-generational story that, unfortunately, I don't think would go on in the modern DC comic bookdom that 
unfortunately suffers from too many hands in the art department. Uh, maybe if there were only one or two people handling art chores, it would have looked better, but it's the inconsistency of the art here that brings the book down, at least for me. It's an interesting story, and like I said at the beginning, I'm not really certain if the Alien X character was a alien that the JSA dealt with during the uh, Golden Age, or even during the uh, more modern Bronze Age in uh, All-Star Squadron. But, unfortunately, the artwork does a disservice to the entire book by giving it an inconsistent feel. So, if there's any negative thing about the book, that would unfortunately have to be it. But there are a lot of positive things in the book, and we'll get to that in my uh, coverage of the book. Jeez, segue school. Uh, starting with the cover, uh, Dave Johnson has a kind of cartoony style that unfortunately doesn't really look, work for me. The way the cover is uh, played out is you have split versions of both the Flash and Green Lantern, with the, I guess, the right-hand side of each character being the modern-day character, and the left-hand side being the Golden Age character, with Alien X and his spaceship in the background. Uh, the style's kind of cartoony, but the meld-up of the two characters just... It looks off, especially Kyle and Alan's face. It looks all kinds of weird. But I've seen worse covers, I'll admit that. Moving into the book on page one, the story is broken up into separate chapters. Now... Each chapter isn't penned by an individual artist. Sometimes there are more than one artist on a chapter, but there are delineations between the artists. And the first artist is Bart Sears. He's probably best known for working, I think, on either Justice League International or Justice League Europe. I think it's Justice League Europe. And his stuff, by far, is the best work in the book. There's a lot of background detail in the art, and the characters really look on model and really look good. Page 3, we get our introduction to Alien X, and he's your pretty standard alien. He's kind of skinny, uh, very tall, he's got the big exposed brain head. He's purple, so that's a little different, but the one thing that does make him stand out in kind of a unique way is that his hand, although having five fingers, has essentially a thumb, three fingers, and then another thumb exactly on the other side, where the pinky would be. So it's a kind of weird hand design that makes him a bit more unique, or at least makes him have a unique feel than, say, just a long-fingered alien or something like that. So kind of neat design there. Then on page four, we get the introduction of General Gunther, and he's your typical bureaucratic general. He's very barrel-chested. He has a drinking problem. Uh, his office has archaic weapons like a sword and an axe on the wall, and it's a stereotypical, what you'd think, sort of government conspiracy general. But the artwork here by Bart Sears is really good, especially the coloring. The shading on here with the uh, yellows against the uh, dark blues of the background just really, really evoke a sort of, a kind of noirish feel to it, so... Sears and the colors here really do a great job at setting the tone of this book. And the same thing that I have to say about the art goes for it on page 5 is we get the introduction of the alien and his purple skin against the sort of orangish yellow background is really, really just pops out. And this is the page where we get the idea that this alien has been experimented on by the government for a prolonged period of time and 
if it weren't for that, he would have been able to just go away after they're done. But they basically experimented on on him so much that he has inoperable cancer and is going to die. So you could see why he might be just a little bit peeved. Page six, panel two. I don't know if this kind of takes me out of the book or not, but having a picture of George H.W. Bush on the wall kind of dates the book. But it also seems out of place because at the time, the current president would have been Bill Clinton. Now, I think, obviously, this is supposed to be set in real time, so the fact that it is Bush probably means that this is just a general who has maybe a meeting with President Bush or was friends with him, and that's why he has a picture on the wall rather than it being an official part of the office where, as a military man, he has to have a picture of the then current president, but there you go. Um, on the same page, on panels five and six, we get the uh, forced suicide of General Gunther, and it's handled, I think, very tactfully here, as we have one panel where the general is horrifying or is placing a gun in his mouth and being very horrified about what's going to be done, and then on the next panel, all we see is the uh, word the onomatopoeia of the word blam and a sort of blood stain on the desk and everything. So it's not gruesome, it's not gory, it's not over the top, but it does get the point across very effectively. Page seven, Andy Smith takes over art chores here, and the art's okay. I do find it coincidental that the people being mugged by a couple of thugs that look like Kevin Smith and Jeff Anderson from Clerks are pretty much an exact analog of the Wayne family. I mean, even down to the fact that the thugs are trying to steal a pearl necklace from them. Plus, on this page, we also get mention of Batman's urban legend status. In the, After Zero Hour, Batman was basically not considered to be a out-and-out superhero. Most of the time, he was considered to be, like they said, an urban legend, the, just to scare people. So... Batman's more scary after zero hour. There you go. Page eight. Uh, on this page, when Alan introduces himself and calls himself Green Lantern, the word balloon that he says has the logo of Green Lantern in it. But unfortunately, the logo is the Hal Jordan Green Lantern logo from the 60s to the 70s or to the 80s comic. I don't know if it's a mistake or they just couldn't get the type font for the old Golden Age Green Lantern symbol. But yeah, it looks... Just kind of out of place. But again, that's just me nitpicking here. Jumping ahead of you to page 12, panel 3. I've just got to say, this image of Jay done by adding Andy Smith is just gorgeous. I don't know who Jay is supposed to be modeled after. I want to say Douglas Fairbanks Jr. I think I heard something like that, but I could be wrong. But this headshot of Jay just looks classic. And he's just got a really simple, stylized, wonderful look. And it's beautifully drawn here. Of course, here we also get the fact that uh, Jay's getting on in years as you see him suffering for what what obviously are chest pains, possibly brought on by, you know, congestive heart failure. So it's not looking good for our hero. And I think this may be a subplot that's going on you know, outside of the books because I don't think the JSA or Jay actually had a real storyline, unless he had a sort of backup or secondary stories in the Wally West Flash book. So there you go. Dave Walker will have to help me with that. Page 15. Uh, initially, I commented on Jay's look. I also want to uh, comment on his costume because it's classic as well. It's just a simple red shirt with a lightning bolt going up on it. 
jeans and the belt and the boots, but what makes it is the sort of Mercury helmet. It's just classic and it really looks good. And I think Andy Smith does a really good draw, really good job drawing it here. It just looks stunning. Page 18, this is one of the things that I like about this book and like about the stories at this time. We have not only one, but two major superheroes in the DC universe that actually have well-rounded, loving, marital relationships. This really seems so natural for these characters, both Jay and Alan, and unfortunately it wouldn't happen today because, I guess, you dandy yo. And then on the next page, page 19, it's also great that the wives not only have connections to their hero spouses, but they also have connection to the current hero counterparts. Not only do heroes have spouses, they also have families, even though they might be adoptive. It's just, it shows that there's a sense of community in the uh, DC universe. It also shows, you Dan DiDio. Pages 21 through 26, Jeff Johnson now takes up our art chores, and his art isn't bad. It's not the worst of the book, but it's definitely not the best. However, the one thing that does make it kind of interesting, or, well, a couple of things make it kind of interesting. First of all, it has a sort of muted coloring scheme, so the colors aren't as bright as poppy, so it gives you the sort of flashback type feel without having to make, you know, like wavy borders or anything crazy like that. Plus, also, all the panels in this in this portion of the book are simple four-panel grids, which I think is more evocative of, you know, the stories that we'd see in the Golden Age. So we're seeing a definite callback here in the artwork. Page 25, panel 3. This is just me reading too much into it, but the uniform that Alien X is wearing here looks an awful lot like a Sinestro Corps uniform, and I don't think I should take anything out of that, but yeah, it does kind of look like that. Page 27, Ron Lim changes over for the art now, and as it being Ron Lim, and since Lim is used to drawing the uh, current Green Lantern, it does look very nice, but it also does look very 90s. And plus, throughout the rest of the book, I think all the narration boxes are given by Kyle. I haven't read the second part of this yet. Uh, well, I've read it, but I haven't reread it, so I can't remember whether or not in the next book if all the narration is done by Wally. So maybe there'll be a switch up in the next book. You never know. However, on page 28 and 29, since we have moved to Ron Lim in the sort of 90s art style, it works perfectly because this two-page splash of having Kyle on the left side of the page and Wally on the right just running through the frozen wasteland in the north is just glorious. This is a poster-worthy two-page splash and yes the characters are their 90s best but oh it's just glorious very nice artwork by ron them page 34 as alan scott uses his well his star heart energy to freeze the ice around where they had buried the ship if only kurt russell were there to witness this or if kurt russell were watching this on a video that would make it so much more interesting or I guess it could be Mary, Mary Elizabeth Winstead if you wanted to. Didn't really care for that version of the movie, but, you know, it's the more modern one, I guess. Page 36. I really didn't mention this except for passing in my synopsis, but there's a page here where after Kyle lands and scans for Alan Scott and finds out, he reaches back and puts his hand on a polar bear who's standing behind him on his hind legs and growling at him. 
it's a really silly scene and it feels very padded in the book. I don't know why it's here. Maybe they just had to get page count out. But it doesn't feel like it fits in the book in any way, shape, or form, except for on page 37. It allows Kyle to bring up a creepy sort of, I don't know, Black Christmas evil Santa. It's, it just seems like filler, and it doesn't seem like it belongs in the book. So, And it's not really all that funny anyway, either. Page 38, Tom Grinberg finishes out the book, and... Again, the art isn't bad, but it is, in my opinion, the weakest in the book. There's a lot of... It's just not as stylized, or it's not as crisp and clean as what we got to see with Ron Lim, or with Andy Smith, or especially with Bart Sears at the beginning. It's... I guess my best comment would be, it's workmanlike. On page 44, panel 1... After the uh, fight between the Flashes and the Green Lanterns, Wally initially blames Kyle for Jay's injuries, but at least Jay sticks up for Kyle because, yes, Jay is having another, let's say it, he's having more chest pains here, and Wally initially thinks that Kyle was the cause of this, and thankfully Jay says, no, this has just been happening to me, and you guys need to gang up on the alien. Then on panel two, I remember how I commented about Jay's look earlier in the book, Again, with uh, Tom Grindberg here, the artwork just doesn't sell it as well. He just doesn't look as good. Then, finally, moving on to after the big old fight between the alien, there's a giant nuclear explosion, and I can only imagine that the way Kyle survived this was he ringed up a nice refrigerator to hide in. That's the only way you can survive a nuclear explosion. Movies taught me that. But that does it for this issue. It was overall a pretty good story. Um, I like the fact that we get to see the Golden Age heroes meet up with their modern age or current age heroes. So it's a nice little crossover. Not anything amazing or noteworthy out of it, but a fun story nonetheless. And we're going to be finishing up this story next week in uh, Faster Friends Part 2. Plus, we're also going to be finishing up the Retribution storyline in Green Lantern number 85, where we find out whether or not Kyle has the ability to take down Fatality without any ring power. We'll have to see. Uh, spoilers, I think he kind of does, because we've got about 100 more issues of Green Lantern to go. I hate spoilers. Anyhow, I hope you guys have a good week. Thank you for listening Just One of the Guys, and make sure that you come back next week for the next episode. Until then, we'll see you later. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. 
There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonsicore contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Gods, a Greenlander podcast. The opening music for today's show was Queen with the song You're My Best Friend, off their album A Night at the Opera. If you haven't bought A Night at the Opera, why haven't you? It's one of the best albums ever. And the best place to get this album, or to get this song, is at Amazon.com. At Amazon.com, not only can you buy the MP3 or buy the MP3 of the album, but you can also buy a CD copy of it as well. Plus, if there's anything else that you want to buy at Amazon.com, you can definitely get it there. However, if you go to Amazon.com, I would ask that you take the link at the Two True Freaks website, located at TwoTrueFreaks.com. Every time you go to TwoTrueFreaks.com and click on the banner on the upper left side of the homepage, you'll be transported to Amazon.com where you can download Queen songs, download whatever song you want, purchase records, purchase clothes, purchase pretty much anything your heart desires. And every time you purchase through the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com, a small amount of money goes back to help the website. It's nothing extra that you have to pay. It's just money that Amazon generously donates to us for advertising for their site. So anytime you want to go buy anything at Amazon.com, please go through the link at 2 